0: the marriage of the profundity of the music with the virtuosity that that I think is really unique. Welcome
1: to Taco Talk, a podcast series that spins tunes and tales with members of the American Classical Orchestra and beyond. Hosted by Thomas Crawford, Artistic Director of the ACO, each episode takes a unique and intriguing glimpse into the world surrounding historic performance.
2: Welcome to Taco Talk. I'm Tom Crawford, the Artistic Director at the American Classical Orchestra. I'm happy to welcome Chloe Fedor, who's a Baroque violinist, wonderful violinist in our orchestra. Welcome, Chloe.
0: Thank you, Tom. Great to be here.
2: She recently recorded the great Bach Chaconne in D minor on a videotape that we made. It's on the ACO website. You can see Chloe playing it. It's a very substantial work, and I know... We're going to talk about that here today on our podcast.
0: I came to be interested in the Baroque violin during my studies at Eastman, my, my undergraduate degree. Paulo Det teaches a wonderful class on historical performance practice. And there's a there's a point at which for every young violinist where you sort of feel the pressure to interpret things as as your teachers did. And there are often lineages as revered as royalty in terms of what to do and what not to do when approaching different music. And I found it extremely refreshing to be introduced to a whole different sound world uh, with these period instruments and playing on gut strings, for one thing, instead of uh, modern steel and synthetic blend. Um, Just being able to coax a completely different palette of expressive devices using equipment that ends up sounding um, more rhetorical in nature, uh, more akin to speech and human voice, with the natural decays and the natural inhale and exhale that um, one has just, just when breathing or speaking.
2: Speaking of instruments, your violin has a very unusual background.
0: Yeah, and this particular instrument that I played on is from the year 1779. It's made by Joseph Merlin, who is a very interesting character, even more so than his name uh, would lead you to believe. Merlin was was an inventor active in London in the 18th century, and in addition to instrument making, clock making, um, dabbling in prosthetics, and all kinds of things, he was he's said to be the inventor of the roller skates. And there's one particular anecdote in which he was showing off both a violin that he made and and was on his roller skates uh, and unfortunately crashed into a huge pane of expensive glass. And I think the violin didn't fare well either. But a, a really zany, interesting interesting person from that time period.
2: How on earth did you end up with this violin <laughs> made by an, an uh, ice skate maker?
0: Little did I know until researching and it was just a, a fun fact after acquiring it in, in an auction.
2: Well, let's talk about the Bach because one could spend well. People have spent a lifetime studying. Believe it or not, this single movement, the Great Bach Chaconne, it's Bach at the highest level, and we do have the autograph, so we're able to tell exactly what he had in mind in terms of the the notes. There are there are a few questions about uh, addition and things like that. It's in Bach's own hand. The Shakon, by the way, is a is a, a sequential pattern where the harmonies continue over basically a four-bar phrase, and then each of the variations on that set of four bars contrast dramatically. But a chaconne is basically a repeating pattern within a short period of bars. Let's listen to one of Chloe's own playing of the chaconne here. And this is one of the variations... And this one, you'll notice, is just single notes, no chords. Each note is the same duration, and they seem to meander. They go up and down the violin. They're not fast nor slow, and they create an environment for the listener of questioning, I think, of of a certain puzzlement, you know, like, what is happening here? This is as simple as any of the variations.
0: is exactly how I interpreted this, this variation of the Chaconne. It loses the stability that one has when you hear a chord and you hear all of the independent voices. To me, it feels like trying to sort of get your footing and feel around for something and you don't quite make it. And there's this slow descent um, in a really unexpected way. There's a haziness and you, you want to try to make sense of, of what it is that's going on.
2: Well, I noticed you took a lot of liberty with the phrasing and with the what I think of as kind of the rhythmic emphasis of them. It would be very boring to play straight sixteenth notes da 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 like a machine gun, and you'll notice that Chloe plays this with great flexibility, emphasizing certain notes. That's all by choice. That's up to the individual artist. Bach does not give us any indications like that other than a few slurings. He, in fact, doesn't even give us any dynamics. Here's a variation with what we call a compound melody. That is, the violin is really playing two parts at once. So it sounds like there's a lower part and there's an upper part, which he's playing with other fingers on other strings at the same time.
0: It's a more declamatory feeling, the stability, the, the rigidity in the eighth notes, um, plus the double stops on the downbeats um, gives it more, I would say, defiant, but also a determined quality. And the fact that it's not a full chord, but the two notes, I think the ear can fill in what you suppose the harmonies to be. And it's actually quite triumphant. And I think this is one of the more um, optimistic sections where you are confronted with something and you're determined to to sort of face it head-on.
2: One of the most majestic things about Bach's Violin Chacon is that it builds in intensity, like few other pieces that we've had. And that building of intensity comes not in ways that you might expect. Sometimes it's more rapid notes, adding more voices. But the piece starts with huge chords as if it's totally complete right from the outset. This one uh, uses scales and rapid scales. And this reminds me of Bach's ability to have what we call melisma, where you play many notes on the same syllable. And in this case, Bach did write in some slurrings, which would indicate many notes on one syllable. But he doesn't write all of them, and so it's up to the performer whether they separate some of them or slur some of them. And you'll notice that Chloe does that at her own discretion.
0: Segment. Um, I was struck by the fact that there is, there is, there are those pillars of of the bass notes being really clearly delineated. So we have um, that in contrast to you know some of the more meandering clips earlier on, and and yet all of the stuff in between, all of the melismas, as as Tom mentioned, are opportunities. I feel like again, the gaining in in confidence and determination and. Sort of between, I, I see the baseline as this um, this fateful thing that you can't control that's, that's going to come around, whether you like it or not.
2: You know, the, it's fascinating that we carry the harmonic progression along with us, even if the violin isn't playing that progression at all. And I think sometimes about the consciousness that we have as listeners. And performers, but those listening to your performance, how it it helps if you have the kind of musical concentration or let's, let's I say consciousness that allows you to immerse yourself in the piece, hear the opening uh, harmonies, those four bars of um, sequence, and then when the violin leaves, meanders, plays double stops. Uh, changes and, and dramatically for each variation. The listener carries that under underlying. Uh, you call it the baseline. It's almost as if the baseline is implied. Sometimes, I mean, you're not playing it,
0: right? And and that speaks even more to what I mentioned about how this is this is a psychological journey. So, just as some things aren't always overt necessarily, but but they're always kind of there, and and we're returning to. It's like your own state of consciousness while experiencing something outside yourself. Um, you either, you're either aware of something overtly or not. Um, and that's part of the beauty of it.
2: Bach requires arpeggios a lot. We know what arpeggios are. And there's a whole passage which he marks arpeggione. Um, play this by arpeggios, even if he doesn't write out the arpeggios, and you know how to make the bow cross the strings. Um, Let's listen to that. difficult to play?
0: In some ways, yes and no. Um, It utilizes not just arpeggiating a section, but there's specific use of what we call bariolage, which is a form of of arpeggiation, but but also utilizing an open string. So you're using all the natural resonance of the instrument. In this case, you hear that open D string. There's something that um, is completely un- we don't stop it with the finger at all. It's it's as resonant as can be. When you're oscillating back and forth and sort of returning to to something over and over, it has that grounding quality. Um, but also, this is sort of this fluttering, ethereal nature. And um,
2: I also notice how freely you make each of the arpeggios. Some of them seem to roll very quickly, and others of them you really... Uh, hesitate and focus on certain notes within the arpeggio?
0: Right. So the open string at first, it's it's hovering, it's sort of in one of the middle voices more, and it just has a different uh, place in which it's sort of um, the ear wants to stay. And then there's a more overt bass motion. So then I, it's it was a way of taking something that is a nebulous stroke by nature and um, finding ways to to still be able to bring out what notes are really pushing the momentum um, through the chords. Hi, I'm David Larkin, Executive Director of the American Classical Orchestra, and thank you for listening. We'll return to the podcast in just a moment, but first, consider helping us continue
1: to spin tunes and tales with other members of the ACO and beyond.
2: Make a donation in honor of Taco Talk. Look for the Donate or the Support ACO button on our podcast page, any email we have sent you, and on our website. We and our musicians
1: thank you for it.
2: Here's a variation with what we call hocketing, where there's music on a high register and then a sudden escape to playing a single low note and that, that low note becomes something of a pedal, that is a, a note that you, that you return to. Uh, in this case, there's several different notes here um, interrupted by very rapid 32nd notes, uh, which actually go far away in the key. We go to E flat and this piece is in D minor. Um, this is fascinating technically.
0: And this is clearly also an intensification, the fact that you have these, these leaps from, from the bass notes, which uh, have a lot of momentum and that they're, they're placed next to each other um, in quick succession and then flurries upward. That's all, that's all an intensification. I mean, if, if you were speaking or, or um, singing or wailing, you know, just having, having, going from something very low to very high is, is intense. And this intensification brings you to a spot that, that could have culminated in actually a very satisfying end to the
2: The use of a major key in the middle of a very serious piece like this uh, suggests a kind of halo. To me, once you go into D major, it becomes uh, like a, a ray of hope or something in the middle of this piece. And it has a kind of a hymn-like quality when you first introduce the D Majors very slow and stately, really. I mean, it's uh, incredible. And how would he return to D minor after music like that? You're increasing in intensity, you're the composer writing this piece, where do you go next? Well, why don't we combine some of the devices we have been hearing? That kind of piling on of techniques as the piece progresses allows for um, great, it draws us in in terms of interest, and it also causes us to Uh, roll forward with the piece like boy what is he going to do next this is so fabulous and keep in mind each variation is only one minute long maybe at the most so here's one where the hocketing happens she goes to the low note and repeats it it's like a pedal tone it's the same note repeating over and over and then on the upper strings the, the part in between she plays double stops So she's bringing back some techniques and materials from earlier variations.
0: And here again is the, the power of repetition, not just in, in the form of a progression that takes a couple of measures, but just one note, bump, 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 something that's, um, I've, I felt it was a harbinger of something new and heralding in something optimistic. The bells are tolling, but for some, some positive reason, and you hear this, It's it's telling you that there is going to be an end in sight. You are going to move toward a cadence, even though it's sort of prematurely this this signal or something to um, to tell you that there's perhaps you know things are gonna in fact get better so I, I I treat it as something quite optimistic
2: now Chloe you mentioned open strings earlier for our listeners the most string instruments that you hear in an orchestra have four strings and they're usually tuned a fifth apart so. The lowest one is a G on the violin, then a D, and then an A, and then an E. And when Chloe refers to open strings, that means that you're playing the note without putting a finger on the fingerboard. It's it's the the full length of the string vibrating in in its entirety. And in the time of Bach, the open strings are virtually exploited. It's a beautiful sound. It can be handled very skillfully by a great composer and a great performer. What would happen is that in modern orchestras or modern technique, if it was inconvenient to use the open string because of a passage that you're playing, um, you don't use the open string whereas with Baroque music, you know the composer was aware of that open string and its particular timbre, and you want to have that. You want that to be brought out, Uh, and no composer knew that like Bach. Uh, This is something where even the choice of the key for a piece like this, D minor, is going, to, it's going, you're going to be better off writing a piece like this if it's in G, the big open string on the bottom, in D, in A, or possibly even in E, the high string. So the point is that it gives that sense of, uh, of uh, destination and gravity so that you can tell that as the whole Chaconne unfolds, she will be coming to the open string of that D by the end of the piece. And there's tremendous satisfaction as you come to that open string. This is, of course, as long as your open string hasn't gone out of tune during the playing of the piece. Here's a passage which exploits the open string of the A, the second string up, a third string up on the violin. And notice how he kind of um, tickles us with the open A working against some other notes sort of fudging around and and they're fickling around and and you can't really tell exactly what's happening here but the intensity it's almost seems to have a built-in accelerando Uh, this is one of my favorite open a's
0: yeah and I think it's noteworthy that the a string it's in the middle of the texture, so to me, I felt like this was um, like treading water and being just above the surface
2: hmm. so Bach, after all of these variations, then comes back to where he started, so that of course is a natural satisfaction. We return home, and the final bars of the chaconne are as the chaconne opens with these huge beautiful four note chords played uh, by all four strings of the violin. At the very end, uh, he comes to that open string I mentioned. And yet because of the counterpoint, that is there are other voices, there, are, there is a second and third and fourth part of the music happening at many times during the chikung. uh another voice that Chloe is playing with her left hand is merging with that open string. It's merging with that open string so that uh, you can hear the tune coming down, honing on that final destination of the D. And you might think the composer that is Bach would would play just the open D and let it soar out there. Well, no. Uh, she plays another D on another string, what we call sympathetically, I guess. Um, so you actually have two Ds being played at the same time on the same violin. One of them has to be open. It's the regular D note. And the other is from the another string. I guess obviously the G string. And, and that means it, uh, you, you hear this undulating of the two pitches. And it brings tears to my eyes every time.
0: Hopefully the pitches are close enough that it doesn't undulate too much it's always a challenge especially after a feat like this piece you know my version i think is 14 minutes long
2: well bach did play string instruments i mean he was a keyboard player primarily wrote primarily for organ great organ pieces but uh, one of the uncanny aspects of the chaconne of all his music is how could he know the violin that well to push the envelope of what others had written for it. And it's so, it sounds so idiomatic. Is it that idiomatic or not really?
0: It is in the sense that he was very smart about the keys. Like we mentioned, you know, he's able to use these open strings because the keys are are somewhat flattering sit well and, and are just to everyone's, um, you know it's in anyone's best interest to have Something come alive the best from you know being able to vibrate and resonate from the instrument. It's the marriage of the profundity of the music um, with the virtuosity that that I think is really unique.
2: Please take fifteen minutes and listen to Bach's Chaconne played by Chloe Fedor. The piece was written in seventeen twenty so this is a three hundred year old piece. Uh, it was written when Bach was at Curtin, uh, his happiest post. He spent 10 years there, wrote a lot of great instrumental music, of which this is arguably uh, the best. So thank you for listening, and thank you for your wonderful work, Chloe.
0: Thank you, Tom. You've been
2: listening to Taco Talk. To learn more about the American Classical Orchestra, please visit us
1: on the web at aconyc.org. I'm producer Mark Zaggy, Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.